Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bootstrap Funder podcast. My name is Avid Karl, and today I'm talking to Michelle Hansen, the co-founder of Geocodio, an indie software-as-a-service business in the world of mapping and geolocation. I've been a fan of her work both as a founder and as an active member of the indie hacker community for years now. I followed her journey with the business just as much as her foray into writing her first book, Deploy Empathy. Michelle really gets the founder community, and she's a respected teacher of all things customer development. And that's not all Michelle has going on. She is also one of the two founders behind the Software Social podcast, where she talks to her friend Colleen on a weekly basis. And this is something that I'm doing in private too, to stay in touch with my friends back in Europe. One call a week, just to chat, recorded just for ourselves as our own little podcast. And I wondered if that's how it started for Michelle and Colleen. So I asked, how did that happen? Was it also just because you wanted to talk, wanted to just hang out? Yeah, so where our podcast came from, um, Colleen and I met through mutual friends who I think I had met them at MicroConf and um, and they were like, hey, like Colleen just moved to Arlington, Virginia, where I used to live. And they're like, you should grab coffee with her. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And then it kind of yeah turned out we were both sort of in this indie space. Like she she was a full-time consultant at the time, wanted to have a business going. But also we lived one neighborhood away from each other. Our kids went to the same school. They were similar ages. And so we just became friends really quickly. And we started meeting for coffee every week to just talk about business and life and did that for uh, quite a while. Um, and then COVID hit and we, you know, couldn't go meet up at a coffee shop anymore. Um, and then, you know, middle of 2020, uh, we moved to Denmark. Um, and so, so, and I realized, oh, you know, I really like missed our chats and, you know, we had kind of joked about making a podcast at some point, but it was never really serious. And then, um, Another one of our friends, actually, Benedict from UserList, he tweeted out how he loves the sort of founder ride-along podcast, but why weren't any women doing any of them? And I just replied to that. I was like, oh, well, Colleen, like, what if we did that podcast we joked about and, like, not really expecting anything of it? And then got a ton of people replying to that tweet and sending me messages privately being like, yes, yes, you should absolutely do that. And I was, we were like, oh, that was, that was a joke. Like, uh, <laughs> pretty and, good one too. But now, you know, especially like having moved, um, abroad. And of course, I mean, now Colleen is in California, right? So we've both gone like totally opposite directions. Um, yeah, geographically. Um, I think that if I didn't have a scheduled meeting with her every week, um, I probably would not be as good as uh, at like keeping up with her. Like I have a, you know, a spoken conversation with her more often than I do any of my other friends uh, in the U.S. Um, and so there's a certain value in doing a podcast with a friend because it uh, it forces you to talk to them and have it be, you know, an event that is that is not missed. Um yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing way of just keeping in touch with people and also just having a another ear for your, your issues or your, your your wins, your losses, like all these things too. Like that, that's a building and public thing that the entrepreneur ride along that you're doing. One thing that always comes to my mind when I listen to your show and I listen to every single episode because I walk the dog a lot because our little puppy that we got last year or this year, early this year, she needs a lot of walks. She's a quite the energetic little thing. And your show is always on because it's the perfect length for the little walk that I do with my pup. And whenever I listen to you guys, I, I always wonder, how do you set boundaries? And I kind of want to make this whole conversation today about boundaries, because that's something that you in particular have been really good at both expressing and keeping to, at least in my perception. I don't know if you feel the same way about this yourself, but with the podcast in particular, I think that's a good opportunity to touch on this topic. The boundary when you have a podcast with somebody is that you have a personal conversation, but it's not a private conversation, right? It's it's something that you're friends, but you won't talk about everything in public, right? Not everything you talk about on the show 
uh, or everything you talk about on the show is kind of filtered at a certain level. So how do you draw those lines? You probably wouldn't talk about like relationship issues beyond a certain point or, you know, financial problems or litigation or stuff like that where it could be a problem. How, how do you draw this line with that show? Because you're very friendly. You're, you're, you're having a great, often very honest and, you know, sometimes quite confrontational conversation on that show. But it's always, it, it, to me at least, I wonder where this line is. You know, I think for for us, first of all, I think we both have a little bit of a natural sense of what our own boundaries are for what we're willing to talk about in public and what we aren't. Um, and and also, I mean, there there's offline conversation that people don't see, right? And so we kind of joke that the podcast, yes, people listen to it, but really it's for us, right? Like, you know, we often chat um, after the show just about life, uh you know, we have other ways of, of talking to each other. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, when it comes to sharing something that is more, um, I don't know, more, more difficult, right? I think for me, the first filter is, A, is this something that I myself have processed, right? Like, have I had a chance to not even, you know, think it through or move on from it, but like, have I taken the time to sit down with us and, and and process it and at least acknowledge what I'm what I'm going through and how I'm feeling about it and talk to somebody about that and like do I have a sense of grounding on it maybe not perspective yet but at least do, like do I feel comfortable in that feeling whether that's business or personal and then the second one is really is this something that's relatable to people and are people gaining by me specifically disclosing this and if no then i don't share it um and now and i i don't know if that's that makes sense but like if there's something that is difficult for me whether it's in the business or or, or in personal life um i feel like the you know the great benefit of being a podcaster is is you're podcasting for other people people like for i guess for our show and specifically like like we say that that our job is to make people feel less alone in building their businesses because many of us you know we we work alone or we work uh or you know maybe you work in a co-working space or from your house or maybe you have one other or two other people you work with but you, you're not working in a big company like maybe you're used to right where you're seeing lots of people every day and and loneliness, I think, is a is a big issue for indie founders. Um, so so that's how we view the purpose of the podcast is first to make ourselves less alone because it forces us to talk to each other every week, and then second that we make other people feel less alone, even just talking about business, um, even if it's a one way conversation, makes them feel less alone as they're out walking the dog or or whatever it is. And so it's like, is sharing something serving that purpose? of making feel somebody feel less alone and sometimes hearing somebody's success makes you feel less alone in your own success right because you didn't have anyone to tell about it that would understand your fake internet job right um or maybe it's something difficult um and so i think that's kind of the filter that that we run everything through or certainly i do and then of course there's after the fact which is that there are times when we say hey like i said that and that came out weird or i shouldn't have said that or whatever and we just edit it out yeah yeah that makes sense and i completely understand this goal of like making people less alone which is an admirable goal i really like that and i say this as a person like living in my own basement pretty much alone all day because it's kind of what i chose to be my job at this point but having the, the connection with people and, and just looking and having a look into somebody else's world, that already improves your own world, right? It's just like, even that's why I read a lot of fiction, not to escape in the other worlds, but to enrich my own. And it feels like many, many people do that too. One question that I have though, because you, you had this, this interesting point where you kind of judge everything you say against, uh, is this good for that purpose or not? Is, is I always struggle with that myself in anything that I write about or talk about. How can I judge what somebody else would perceive as useful for themselves? You know, it, it always feels this is some, some kind of highly subjective rule that I set for myself, some kind of subjective filter. And um, 
How do you weigh the potential of you judging something not worth being talked about against, you know, the couple people that it might actually help versus this whole, you know, most people won't benefit from that? Because that, that's what I struggle with with highly specific niche topics. Like it would probably help a lot of people um, a little and, and some people a lot. But this other topic that's more generic would help everybody to a certain extent, but not these people who would need the specific advice. How do you how do you struggle or how do you deal with that kind of struggle? I think for, for me, I think about whether those people are already in my audience mm -hmm. or whether they they should be part of that audience. Right. Yeah, um, right. You know, every episode is not for every person. Right. That's, you know, what is the, the quote that you can please some of the people some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. Um. And sometimes it's all the people, none of the time. <laughs> um, but I guess that's what I run it through. It's like, and, and, and often it's like, would this have helped me seven years ago? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Eight years ago, nine years ago. Would this, would this have been something that helped me when we were thinking about side projects and trying to get something going? Or we had a side project and we're trying to balance that. Or five years ago when I still didn't feel like I was a part of the indie founder community and didn't really know anybody. Um, like, would this have helped me then? Or heck, would this have helped me six months ago? Um, I think that's kind of the the filter that I look at it through. There are, I mean, there's an in infinite thing amount of things that any person could share that inevitably another human being would find relatable, right? I think this is the kind of the beautiful thing about humanity is that we have so much in common with other people. And if we open up about it, then we will find those things. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean those people are standing in front of you. Um, and so, and, and also when we go into something more specific, we try to limit it. Um, and so we'll do, okay, we'll just do one episode on that and then we'll kind of go on to other things because it's not as relevant to everybody but there is a group that would really appreciate being seen and hearing about that yeah that that makes sense to me like also the choices you make right in in what you talk about what you don't talk about that's your unique voice that's the things or those are the things that people will associate with you. And some people might self-select out of your audience because of it. And other people will select into your audience, which in the end is a win-win situation for everybody, right? Because you get the people you want to talk to who care about the topics you talk about and the people who don't, well, they listen to somebody else. I think that's, that's, a, that's a great point, like that you limiting yourself allows people to make a discern, discerning choice and then either listen to you or Joe Rogan, you know, or somebody else that they find like more appealing or whatever it is. I think yeah, that that makes that makes sense to me. That I'm 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 interested in this because it feels to me that we always have this perfectionist approach. We want everybody to be happy. We want to serve as many people as possible with the things that we build. And you you building Geocodio, you probably know this too. Like you have the you have customers that are perfect for your business, and then there are the customers who you know you could serve. But should you, <laughs> you know, like that's another level of, of setting a boundary, but in, in this case, not for what you talk about, but for what your business does. How do you do this with your own customers? Like, how do you make sure that you serve the, the right customers with your software as a service business that you run? It's a continual process to be serving the right customer segments and figuring out where we're a good fit and where we aren't. Um, the first way, quite frankly, is to see who's paying you all the time, right? If a customer has been paying you every month for six months, a year, four years, chances are what you do is a good fit for what they're doing. And maybe there are other things that they're doing that they're doing manually or using other services for that are adjacent to what you do that they would love if you did even more of. Um, and so I, I like to start with those customers that I'm already or our business is already a good fit for and grow from there. It's much easier to grow a business by understanding what people already like about what you do, whether that is a podcast or a SaaS um, and doubling down on that and understanding what is it that brings them to you and why you specifically, what are the advantages you have in their eyes over the competition 
how do you speak to those? How do you um, use their words to market to them, understand which features are important to them? Um, because if you serve the happy customers, you will be a happier founder. Um, and now there's there's a lot of analysis that needs to go into that. This is actually something um, I got to dive into recently on my own podcast, talking about moats and competitive advantages with Matt Wensing of Summit. Because we can't just listen to our customers and just build everything that everybody says. We have to filter that and understand what is in scope for our company and what isn't and where are there advantages for our company and where aren't there. Um, and that is a kind of filtering that only the founder can do um, or usually the product manager at a big company. But we're an indie crowd, so we're usually doing the product strategy ourselves. I was going to say, for um, small SaaS, that's a, that's a different choice. And you have to make that choice. Like, particularly, how, how many people are you? Are you still just two people in your company, or are you more at this point? We made our first hire in July. Mm. So um, the company is my husband and I as co-founders, and then we uh, hired a former coworker of his as our content and uh, support engineer. Oh, that's cool. So you you have like some kind of um well okay yeah, three people is still that's that's small but it's also big because you know like the smallest unit is zero that's not having a business at all but it, the, yeah my question here really is like how do you not overstep what this unit of three people can do right how do you not overreach into yet another adjacent feature or yet another potential rocket ship to the moon kind of product that might revolutionize your industry lots of people have really high ambitions there how how do you keep to the the core of what makes your business work like do you have any metrics or any kind of um just framework strategies to to keep that in place like to to stay on course Here's an example uh, of something. I have a decision where we decided to not proceed with the feature. Um, for years, we've had people ask us about global geocoding. So when we launched, we supported the US only, um, and shortly thereafter added support for Canada. And pretty much since the beginning, people have been asking for more international support and really global support. And I think we launched a an alpha of global geocoding in can't remember the year, but I remember we lived in our old, old house. Isn't it funny how we remember things like that? <laughs> yeah, my place. Um, so I want to say this was probably 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. And we quickly realized, even with only having one or two customers using this alpha, who were long-term customers, who were very nice and understanding people, that for a small team, the world is a very big place. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we simply could not handle the scale of problems that could happen doing worldwide address to coordinate conversions that we just simply couldn't do it. Now, that was an inflection point. We could have decided, yes, we're going to do this. We are the people to do this. Let's go. Let's get some funding. Let's go full time now. Like we are the people to do this because there's an opportunity there. We instead looked at that and said, all right, there's a million other companies doing this. Most of them are extremely well-funded. You may have heard of them, like they're, they're called Microsoft and Google, um, as well as some very well-financed um, VC-backed companies like Mapbox um, and, some, and some indie um, competitors as well. And we're like, you know what? We can't, we can't compete with that. And so instead we decided to say, okay, well, well what are people using us for that other people aren't doing. And this is really what led us down the path of focusing more on data enrichment, for example. Um, so coordinates are a doorway to information about an address. So for example, you can't determine what someone's time zone is unless you have the coordinates for their address. Um, and so we've started to understand all of these other adjacent use cases. And we learned that, hey, if people can if we can save people from having to hit eight different APIs with all these different formats and pricing and data storage policies and wrangling all that data, and they can just get it in one request from us, they will pay us and they will keep paying us. Um, and so that was a strategic decision that we made that another company, and I mean, quite frankly, other companies have made different decisions at that inflection point. Um, but that was a decision on staying a small team um, and I think being humble, quite frankly, about what we were able to solve and what we weren't, 
um, that continues to, to guide us. That's interesting because it's quite literally a boundary as, as, a, <laughs> as a geographical boundary that you chose for your your product and your business and i like it because you focus inward right you, you look at what can we do with what we already have instead of where can we go beyond what we have right now right you don't look at the the put the, 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 you don't look at the greener grass over there that's pretty much what it is right you look at what you can do to fertilize the grass that you already have in your backyard which brings me to another point you seem to do a lot of gardening and a lot of like apple cider pressing and that kind of stuff and that's i, I don't know i was thinking about what i would like to to talk to you about because it's uh, you share a lot of things quite openly on Twitter, which I'm very grateful for because I get to have a glimpse into uh, the little Danish life that you li- that you live, and it's really nice. And on the show too, you talk about these things. I I wonder like with all these things going on in your life, podcasts, right, appearances on podcasts, running Geocodio, learning a second language, or probably no, no, is it is your second language, or do you have a couple others in there as well? Uh, This is the fifth language I have studied. (laughs) I would not say I am fluent uh, in uh, any other uh, language. Um, Deutsch ist mein uh, zweiten... uh, What is it? What's the word for a language? It's been like 10 years. Sprache! Oh my gosh. There you go. (laughs) Deutsch ist mein zweiten Sprache. Uh, No, and then I married a Dane and... Stop practicing it. Close enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's on the list for after I finish. Language oh, that's school. so cool. Any, yeah. It, anyway. Well, after, I fin- <laughs> after I finish, right? With languages, does that ever happen? <laughs> well, this is what I'm thinking about because there are so many things. These are kind of open-ended projects, right? Podcasts, you can run them forever. Businesses, hopefully, run them forever. And learning should never end anyway. So how do, how do you manage that? Like, how do you juggle a family, too? Like, you have a decent-sized family and... You know, like building projects. I, I guess the room in, in which you're currently recording this is also one of these things that, uh, you know, have, has been part of your journey. How do you manage these things? Because these are a lot of things. And most founders, they try to focus on building a business and ignore everything else. How does that work? Because I want to know. I think, I mean, honestly, the the truth is that I just... I just have to have a lot of projects going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, just interested in a lot of things. I don't think I necessarily manage all of it well. Um, so there's a difference between seeing the life <laughs> that um, somebody posts on the Instagram, Twitter. Highlight even video, though right? I, you know, I'm not like trying to like project like a perfect Instagram life, right? But like, you know, you might you might see my tomato plants and our shed quarters on Twitter. And like what you don't see is the fact that, yes, I have been in our lovely little shed quarters in, in the yard all day. Uh, and also the whole day intending to take a long walk with the dog and finding time to eat the healthy lunch that I packed. Uh, and uh, it's 3.30 and I haven't found time for any of that. Um, I've barely had enough water today. Yeah. Because I was fighting with various uh, state sales tax websites, so yeah, <sighs> yeah. I, 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 how do I manage it? <laughs> Honestly, not well. Yeah, like that's right. if we're being truly <laughs> honest, I just I have a lot of interest and a lot of enthusiasm, and uh, you know, I think. Thankfully, I have a good amount of follow through. My husband certainly has an even better follow through gene than I do. Um, so, you know, we, we work as a team and uh, yeah, fo- I don't know, it's a through. work in progress, though. That's yeah. right, right? Like. If, if, and if it isn't, like, what is it? Like, I, I think there's only two other states that work in progress and that didn't start or just finished and stopped. Stopped doing what you wanted to do, right? That's Those are the other two. But honestly, no, I, I didn't expect, like, a, like a, a perfect guide to managing your life. I don't think anybody has this. But I think what you do is you you at least are good at compartmentalizing the things that you do, right? That, from what I see, which is, again, a filtered perspective, obviously. And even, uh, even though you share with me that you do struggle, like everybody struggles to a certain degree, it just seems that you still get stuff done, which is nice. Right. And um, what, what I think it is, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, is that you don't have like extremely super high expectations. You have an iterate, iterative approach to stuff like that's that's what, what I, I, I guess anyone building in public sharing these little updates, uh, these these tiny little wins, tiny losses, whatever it might be. They understand that it doesn't have to be this grand goal. Just 
doing anything is fine. Anything towards that goal. Is, is that how you approach your projects as well? Yeah, I think it's always a work in progress. Um, I, I remember when I first learned about the idea of Kaizen um, and... And and I you know I learned about it sort of you know out of context right not not within the the context of the, the the Toyota manufacturing system and everything else but just as this idea of the goal is continual progress and I get a lot of satisfaction and and feeling of completion about having the next version of something out now that doesn't mean that I don't feel that kind of itch to keep improving things like I constantly do um but I I yeah I I enjoy the I enjoy the climb so to speak um of it and 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 I think that's really important for anything that you do that I used to look at goals and be like okay I will be happy when I reach the goal and you know what happened that never happened yeah. like it that that uh elusive happiness when x happens it never happened and so at some point i was able to shed that and just try to um you know find a way to find completion and a, a sense of progress in the progress itself and also i mean also quite frankly you know being an entrepreneur i can self-select into the processes which is you know running a business is a process right um that i find rewarding throughout the journey um i think i found that when i'm doing something where all i can think about is the end result and i'm suffering through the process of it that's not something for me yep yeah i i, I very much agree i think my my own personal experience is the exact same thing particularly after selling the company like you would think that having this great exit and and all the, the financial things around it would be life-changing in an emotional sense but it's it's only really in a fiscal sense if at all right like the, we, we were still the same people just like having you know opened one more champagne bottle in our lives that was really it but but everything around us like all the the passion we had for work the the things that um we we wanted to do that was still there nothing really changed right we reached a goal but there was not this this emotional um, upheaval that we expected there to be and and I guess that that changed my perspective too on like finding um, a path to walk instead of a, a destination to walk towards and this is a great opportunity to talk about the sponsor of this show it couldn't be a more fitting moment actually because it's microacquire and microacquire is the number one startup acquisition marketplace which is simply the most efficient way to sell a startup when you're ready to make your next move. And that was a position that I was in when we sold Feedback Panda. Typically, as a first-time founder, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. I certainly didn't when I went through my acquisition because it was my first one, and it's most people's first acquisition. Microacquire wants to help with that and empower you when you're speaking with buyers, also for the very first time in your life, and then streamline this whole process of getting acquired for a maximum amount of money without a minimum amount of headaches. And there are a lot of headaches if you go at it alone. So it's great to have somebody like Microacquire to help you with that. To date, Microacquire has helped hundreds of startups successfully get acquired, thousands probably at this point, and they have facilitated hundreds of millions in close deal volume. If you're thinking about selling your startup, you will want to check out Microacquire. Do it today, even if you might not wanting to be selling the business at this point. Keep yourself informed. Check out Microacquire. Go to microacquire.com to learn more. And now let's get back to the conversation. I love the the books by Brandon Sanderson, the fiction writer, and he has a um, what is it, Quintology out at this point um, called the Stormlight Archives. And one of the main themes of this, these like thousands of pages per book series, which I really like, is journey before destination. That's the idea. The idea is that the journey is as the, the part why you do it. Destination is just kind of where you aim, you know, so you know where this is essentially kind of going. But the journey is the interesting part. And the journey is the thing why you do it, not the destination. And let, I really like the phrase enjoy the climb because that's, that's essentially what it is. Every single I'm day. quoting just, Miley Cyrus, by the way. Yeah, of course. Like, why wouldn't you? <laughs> right? I mean, that's uh, it, art informs life and the reality. And I think uh, that that is one that that is really really relatable to me as a as a founder as an entrepreneur and now as a writer and we should talk about that part too but let's let's stay with the the founder entrepreneur space for a second longer because what the reason why i talk to you today is because we had a little conversation on twitter 
and it was about the psychological challenges of becoming a founder, right? We, you, you talk about the challenges of being a founder, but even getting to this point, like becoming somebody who throws away their structured nine to five life and becomes somebody who is only responsible for themselves and, and their family and, and the, their business, that is a that is quite an intense thing to do. And enjoy the climb. The phrase just triggers in me this 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 steep hill that where you that has fog on top. You can't even see where you're going. You just see that something is is climbing, and you make this this active choice of leaving your the lush green valley behind you with the village and all the amenities, and you look into the just the hill, the climb towards the top. And I, I you, you you said something in that conversation that we had on Twitter that where it was really between you have to enjoy the challenges if you're an entrepreneur and an employee does not necessarily have to do that. Like somebody who works full-time job, even though isn't entrepreneurship a more than full-time job, right? Like obviously we spend all day working on the thing while an employee does not. But what I wanted to ask you is how, what, what kind of challenges did you in particular experience going from your I think you had a PM position, like product management position into entrepreneurship with family on the line, with not knowing where this was going to go. I know that Geocodio came from a different project even. like, Can you talk about these, these psychological challenges and how you overcame them for yourself? Well, I think it probably makes sense to, to start out on that sort of philosophical, psychological level. Um, and... You might be familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? This is a core idea from psychology that, you know, the bottom, this this pyramid, right? So we're talking about mountains and pyramids today. You know, at the basic level, you have your needs for um, shelter and and food, and then as you go up the pyramid, you you have needs for, um, you know, socialization and um, and intellectual fulfillment and all these other things, and eventually at the top, you have self actualization. Now, without get, get, getting into Maslow and, and kind of loosely, loosely using that, right, I think a challenge that, that, that I certainly face and I see other people face as well is that to a certain degree, when you have a stable full-time job, you have self-actualized in that role, right? You are getting a steady paycheck. You know that, you know, I mean, we're in a very tough economic environment right now, but you can be relatively confident that you're going to be able to pay your mortgage next month and buy groceries and you have a certain role within that company and in turn within your community, you have an identity. You can say, this is this is what I am. This is what I do. Now, the fact that people so tightly couple what we do with our identities now is a whole different conversation. Um, but that gives us this sense of of stability uh, in our lives and to then intentionally switch away from that requires a lot of mental work. Even if you're not happy in your job, you still have an identity that is tied to that job and the fact that you're, you and your family's, you know, physical, social, emotional dietary needs are, are all basically being met by that job and so to, to to sort of switch all of that inertia over to something else is mentally a very very difficult switch even if it's something that you have looked forward to your entire life it might still be difficult um and and i think sometimes people underestimate this and and they don't realize how much of a change it's going to mean, even if just from, you know, uh, working remote from their basement, but in a company of 500 people where they're on a team, um, and how much that gives them a sense of identity and purpose versus working from their basement by themselves alone. Um, even if they're still a software developer functionally, right? Like there, there has been an identity shift there and it can be really difficult um, to rebuild and sort of re-self-actualize um, after a big transition like that. Yeah, identity conflation uh, is that. That sounds like a like a problem, <laughs> you know, where you overlap your your sense of who you are with the, your sense of what you do, and it becomes the same. Feels like um, entrepreneurs have that problem too, in 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 a funny way, right? But if if you are a solopreneur, if you are an indie hacker, 
um, you want to stay an indie hacker and everything beyond that, which is like the, the whole term um, unemployable, like becoming unemployable. It seems to be almost a meme in the community where I use it too. Like, I don't feel I want to be employable, you know, like, um, do I want somebody else to tell me what I do? Because I've now lived those many years as somebody who told himself what to do and nobody could ever tell me. Of course, customers tell you what to do all the time, right? Like their behavior very much influences, if not even decides what you do. So you don't have full control anyway, but you tell yourself that and your identity becomes this. I think... There's barely any difference really between having a job and be defining yourself as a software, an enterprise software developer or a solo entrepreneur software developer. I think the kind of conflation is the same. How did you overcome that for yourself? Like when, when you started um, the, the project to, that then led to Geocodio, was it, a, like, was it a side project that had happened kind of organically or how did that happen for you? Yeah, so that's actually jumping back three and a half years to the start of it. So we initially got side projects going, um, mostly just as a way to get extra money. Um, you know, daycare, for example, in the U.S. is really, really expensive. It's like $24,000 a year for infant care. It's more expensive than college in the majority of states. Um, and so, you know, we had a baby on the way and people told us it was expensive, but then you go around and we actually found out how expensive it was. And so that kind of lit the fire under us to really start launching side projects so we could just simply, you know, afford that or keep the same level of our, of our life. Um, and it was from that, we, you know, we, we launched um, our first app together. Um, and then through the process of that app, which was making a couple hundred bucks a month in ad revenue, we realized we needed geocoding for it. We couldn't use the major providers for a variety of reasons because they wouldn't let us store the data and um, their pricing wouldn't let us pay for more than the free tier at the time. And so we built our own very rudimentary geocoder and told some friends about it. And they're like, oh, hey, I have the same problem. Like, why don't you just slap it like a paywall in front of this? And Maybe other people will pay for the servers for it. And we're like, oh, that would be awesome. And so when we launched Genius. it, our, our our definition of a wild success was making $20 a month yep. to pay for the two little digital ocean droplets we had. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> hey, start start low, right? Like set, yeah. set really, really small goals. Really? I mean, it, that was that was it, was was to have other people pay to host this so we didn't have to pay for it. Yeah. Um, and then... You know, I'm skipping a lot here, but then it, it took three and a half years until we went full time. Um, so it was really it was really the low and slow uh, barbecue method of uh, building a business. So did you did you work like still full time in your day job until that point? Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's so even we more impressive. Had full time <laughs> jobs. So I was a product manager. Uh, my husband, Matias, was um, a software engineer at a startup. So we both worked you know, nine to five and then some jobs um, and found time for Geocodio on the weekends and at night. And what's so great about it at that point is that when you work in a company, there is higher stakes to what you do. You know, like you can't just be like, hey, like this new JavaScript framework seems really cool. Let's use it. Right. Because there's the, you, like you can't do that or like, oh, like let's, you know, let's try out this new method of doing like onboarding you've got to go and make a business case for that, right? And so we could just try stuff and it didn't matter. And if we lost money, that was on us. And that was liberating, especially when it wasn't our full-time job that it was like, yeah, let's just try this and see if it works. Like, And so it was our little professional playgrounds basically for uh, improving our skills and, and getting to try new things. And, um, you know, and at that point, there wasn't too much sort of bureaucratic overhead. Um, so it it was just, it was fun. And, and I guess that gets back to enjoying the climb, right? Like we enjoyed the climb of, of, of it being a side project and, and getting to that point. Now, not everybody has that luxury, like, right? There's a lot of people who work two jobs and don't have the time or energy to have a side project going. Um, or... Um, they have other demands on their life or time that don't allow them to do that. Um, or they, they need to go full-time sooner or they see the opportunity to. And quite frankly, I think that's what drives me to now invest in other, um, 
indie style companies, I guess I will call them, you know, through like Tiny Seed and, and Calm Fund because um, I never really considered our business a like an investable business sort of from a, like a VC perspective uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, thinking back, I was like, you know, if I had if I had had that option, I probably would have gone full time sooner, um, you know, through Tiny Seed or, or Calm. Um, because you don't you don't <laughs> you don't have to go through three and a half years of it being a side project until you can get full time that 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 takes a toll on someone yeah um, and i'm grateful there's other options now well the, the one of the one of the main benefits of calm and tiny i i feel be, being also part of the, the calm fund is the the mentorship network that comes with it because most people who built their their businesses they, they as a side project too they don't know. <laughs> they don't know anything, really, right? They don't know like how to how to scale some some part of your business enough, but not too much, right? Not where to where to put your attention, what needs to come next, and all that kind of stuff. Just even figuring out if you're in the right niche or if you should expand somewhere, or you know how to deal with certain problems that every entrepreneur has to deal with, but you have not yet. All of this stuff can just eat up so much of your time and precious time too if it's a side project if it's a, a moonlighting thing right if you do it this like from nine to ten every night it's the only time you can spend on your business you better use that hour use in, in, a, in a way that has impact on the business and if you don't know what to do everything is experimentation that's a problem so yeah i i, I very much agree with you on this and i think this is also what the the twitter build in public's entrepreneurial community does a lot trying to help people figure out a path not necessarily how to walk it but at least where to look for it that's kind of what it is that's that is interesting i did not really know i mean i knew a couple things about the, the business that but three and a half years that is a lot of time to run a side project and uh what was what was the sign for you to to make that switch was it was it an mrr or like a, a feeling or something like i i wonder because for us when when we did it we had a, a number we knew that this monthly recurring revenue i think it was somewhere around fifteen thousand. it's funny i knew we had a number but i cannot recall the number <laughs> that's where it is but we had something where it said this is what we could pay ourselves now knowing the margins of the business and it's better than what we had before from from where we were at, at this point both me as a software engineer and danielle as an online teacher so we, we knew our numbers and we knew the business did this now it's time to go full-time on it how did that happen for you what, what was the choice ours was very different we did not have a number um, and I think I was actually afraid of being a full-time entrepreneur, quite frankly. Um, I didn't know if I was capable of it. Uh, and I, I felt like it was too risky. Like I liked, you know, I mean, having a full-time job has, has pros and cons, but it is, you know, by and large, you know, stable, right? Um, supposedly. And, supposedly, right? right? I mean, it, and that's and that's part of the point, right? Um, but, you know, when I was a kid, my, my dad was a software consultant. And I remember, you know, that sometimes things were a little bit up and down or our health insurance was terrible, which, I mean, people who are not from the US, like you have such an advantage not having to worry about health insurance. Like, oh my God, like I, I, it's hard to explain the level of stress that that puts on someone who wants to be an entrepreneur in the US. Like it's just it's 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 massive and and it's a huge financial hurdle. Um right because um it, yeah. every Sorry. story I is mean a it's just I'm losing I'm losing this. Yeah, yeah. You know, yes, this story is about how in the US there's no social safety net because we started a business because of daycare and then yeah. health insurance was a consideration going full time. Yeah, really, um, right? This is <laughs> no, but um so for me you know, and also, you know, we have a family. And so I think thinking back to my own experiences with entrepreneurship as a kid, you know, having positive ones, but also that sort of negative side of it. Um, but also remembering, you know, my dad works in tech and there's there's layoffs every couple of years, regardless of how good of a job you do. Um, if company says 10, 20 percent cut, like that's that's it um, or they fold. Right. So. um it was it, it got to a point where it, the, the the business w was actually really stable and i felt like i could trust the revenue um which is weird and it kind of anthropomorphizes it is not the right word because it's not an animal but like uh, personifies it a little bit because um 
I think for the first two years, I basically woke up every day and being like, oh, you know what? Google could change something in their pricing. Amazon could enter this market and we're wiped out, right? Like all the customers will leave. We're gone. This has been a nice ride. We've paid off my student loans. It was a it was a good good run, but like it's over. I <laughs> literally another financial thought that, problem. Yes, this is a very American <laughs> perspective on this because we are traumatized financially, Arvid. No, um, Feedback Panda was also <laughs> like the, the initial thing that Feedback Panda did for us was also pay off the Neil student loans. So I completely okay. understand. <laughs> um. So, so uh, but I yeah, pretty much woke up every day just thinking this could just go away. And it really wasn't until that third year when I could see, hey, actually, you know, there's people who've been paying us for two years now, like, and they're paying us every month and they're sticking around. And um, I think also I started to learn about things about competitive advantage and, and moats and and more about business and investing. And, and I started to see the potential in the business, uh, but was still still afraid of, of being an entrepreneur. Um, Matthias had wanted to go full time for a long time. You know, his parents were also entrepreneurs. Um, and so I was the one holding us back. Um, but then, I mean, it was a very personal decision. Um, the company I was at where I was very happy. Uh, there was a big reorg and it was unfavorable for my department. Uh, and I decided to leave. And actually, when I quit, I started applying for jobs. And and I didn't know whether I was going to go full time on Jucody or not. So I just did some interviews and I remember sitting in an interview and, you know, I had, you know, uh, in my in, in my resume, you know, with with customers, including, you know, the Red Cross and like blah, blah, blah for, for my side project. And I remember one of the developers on the team being like, so if you have this successful like software business on the side, why are you applying for jobs? <laughs> And it wasn't a critical question. It wasn't coming from a judgment or a place of threat. He was just confused. <laughs> and I was like, I really hadn't thought about that. Yep. And, you know, a big thing for me was, am I being selfish by doing the thing that will make me happier, even if it is more unstable for my family? Because I looked at entrepreneurship as bad health insurance, up and down revenue, like, uh, like it, it, it just felt unstable to me. And, but then one of my friends was like, you know what, if you are happier in your work, you will be a better spouse and a better parent and you will work to make it work. You will find a way to make it stable. Uh, you will find a way to make it work. And that really shifted things for me because, um, because yeah, I, I really, I really, almost viewed it as a selfishness on my own part to consider being an entrepreneur and um but that that helped me but i mean it took me months to to i mean years even to really identify as an entrepreneur and not feel i guess kind of sheepish about it um do you consider this a cultural thing like some, something that was instilled in you at some point or, or is more like a personality issue i wouldn't even call it that but you know like, where, where does it come from? I always wonder with these kind of things, the, the stories we tell ourselves, right? Where do they come from? Certainly we didn't make them up. They have to come from somewhere. I mean, I think I'm a very financially cautious person in general, right? So given, you know, the experience I had growing up, but also my first week of college was the financial crisis. And so everybody <laughs> ran around talking about how their college <laughs> funds were gone one week oh, into it. Boy. Like it was, you know, there, there was a lot of financial drama <laughs> going on. Um, and I, you know, come from from a uh you know middle class background right so um it's i don't i don't know if that's cultural or simply life experiences that versus you know matthias like he grew up in denmark they never had to worry about health insurance if you don't have a job the government pays for it they'll pay for your house like you know there wasn't you know there wasn't that same level of sort of repeated financial trauma or the threat of instability um you know they his, his family, you know, they, they weren't wealthy, but like there, there was never that threat of instability, whereas it was it was kind of always there um, for me and for a lot of other people I know. And I don't know if that's you could say that's a culture thing or it's just a life experience thing that a lot of people share. Um, wow. Yeah. That sounds like a generational yeah. trauma in, in some regard, even right? Like it feels like a social 
like yeah because i'm from germany um pr pretty much denmark in many many regards right when it comes to social security systems and uh high, any kind of education up to the highest levels being paid for by the government and all these kind of things like i've never wanted for anything in my life really even when i had no money people even paid partially for my place to live and that was there was all government like that's why we have extremely high taxes which we by the way noticed when we sold our business right but yeah that, i mean that comes kind of with with being being a european you have these systems that make you pay a lot in taxes but you also get a lot when you don't have any money it's, it's a social um equalizer in many ways so i i feel the same way I never felt threatened. And it's interesting to hear, so thank you for, for sharing this perspective, that you have this kind of undercurrent of fear of losing everything. Kind of, that's what it sounds like. Right? You, you never know. Am I going to be able to go to a hospital tomorrow? And that, that is a whole other thing, right? Like the horrendous medical uh, prices, like even with insurance, it could mean like any, any accident could mean a large financial um, back backlash that you would have to to you know take credit for whatever weird thing you would need to do to deal with this. So would you say that um, every every uh, every U.S. entrepreneur kind of carries this trauma with them? <laughs> like, do you feel this is a common thing? I I don't think I can speak for everybody, um, but I, you know there, there's everybody has their stories probably of how in some ways financial instability um, has driven their decision making. And I think it's important to see that, that people's decisions make sense from their own perspective, from their own lived life experience. You know, for me, something I thought about was how when I graduated from college, where you probably had support from the government for being unemployed as a recent graduate and housing and everything, um, I spent my life savings on my first month's rent and I had $31 left over for the entire month. I couldn't afford heat, like I could barely afford groceries. I biked everywhere because I couldn't afford to take the subway. Um, and I look at that and I say, there's no way that I could subject my family to that. And I think that was for me something that was, yes, I dealt with it and I'm fine for it. Um, but I I could never say to my kids, sorry, like you, you can't sign up for, you know, this sport or whatever because I did the selfish thing and chose to be an entrepreneur. I don't think it's selfish to be an entrepreneur, but that is the that is the mean voice in my head speaking. Um and it took me a really long time to uh I don't know, tell it somewhere between tell it to shut up and um prove to it that there was enough data that I was like because actually at that point when I went full time Geocodia was making four times my salary. Like, and I had been just, you know, crawling <laughs> at a slow pace up in my salary, right? And it was um, still, it was four times my salary and I still didn't trust it because it was just, what if this disappears um, overnight? That's pretty much, it, it rings a bell like with me. Like we did this, but not 4X, but with 2X. Like our business was doing twice what we together would make in a month and that's when we chose to say okay like if we if we now pay ourselves that means that there's more money in the company and that the company itself is valuable so we might be able to sell it it was also the time i think it's also a timing thing for many people like particularly with software businesses now that there's micro acquire and all these these kind of uh, acquisition platforms around or even just the brokers that are out there you can still get some kind of value out of a company that's kind of winding down right somebody else might take it somebody else might you know, try to take a take a run at it and, and turn it into something else so there's value in in even a company that doesn't do well but i i completely understand this hesitation because it is a big risky move to make and particularly with a family to support and with a the fear of what if it doesn't work Right, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense to for this to stay a side project. That's something that I advocate to a lot of people who come from uh, financial backgrounds of instability too, in, in general. Right, like if you if you don't know what you're going to be doing and if it's going to be successful, don't waste your life savings on this six month runway of a, of a dream that you have for a business. Like the the idea, you know, like the idea that you think is going to revolutionize whatever industry you're in, probably won't, and you probably have to change it. And then you can wonder, was it a good idea? Was it not? Hey, if you are in this stage, you should definitely not commit all your funds to starting a business. 
no matter where you are, even if there is a social net, it, it feels like a, a side project, a moonlighting, kind of community-driven kind of, you know, uh, look at what people actually suffer from, what they actually need to be solved instead of going for your big idea. That kind of project seems to me in the long run to be the better way into building something valuable, meaningful that can actually sustain a life. And I, I see this with you and, and what you do, like you're... And what you share about your business as well, right? You're now dealing with problems that are by far not as foundational, at least that's what it seems like, as they probably were like two or three years ago. Like you were talking about sales text um, websites and that kind of stuff. I've been following the, your podcast, of course, and you talking about your certification and these things. That is like... That is when you already have momentum, you get to deal with these problems, right? They get to be annoying when the foundations are stable. How do you feel about that? Like, is this still annoying? Are you still working on these things? How's it going with that? No, I mean, I, I, I feel like the foundations are stable. And I think that's what gave us, you know, really the confidence to to go full time, um, both of us. Um, and, and, and realizing actually they had been stable for a while um, at that point. Um, and... I, yeah, you know, to what we were talking about, the journey, right? The problems I'm dealing with now, you know, sales taxes, SOC 2 compliance, uh, figuring out how to be a good manager. Um, these are very, very different problems that are almost luxury problems compared to the kind of problems that we had in 2014, 2015, 2017. Um, the, the, the business itself, you know, not just sort of the, the company, but how we make money, how we provide value to other people, how they pay us for that, how we acquire new customers. Um, all of those things have been sorted out at this point. And so now if we think about, you know, the business as something that is going up that Maslow's triangle of self-actualization, right? Like we have solved that base level of what is it that we do? Where does this live? Um you know, and then where does this fit in the market and, and, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, we're, we're always sort of continually climbing and improving, but yes, it's, it's, it's an entirely different, um, set of problems and challenges that we face right now, uh, than we did eight and a half years ago. And, um, I think we're, we're continually surprised that we continue to enjoy, um, those those new challenges that come up and that we're we're not bored of it um i matthias and i were talking about this a couple months ago and it was like he's like yeah like i'm just surprised like that i'm still excited to work on the same code base i've been working in for eight and a half years and you know sure sometimes you look at it and you're like god what idiot wrote that and it was you know him six years ago right or like i did something you know and it's like you know but i i, I guess i get satisfaction out of being like man like me five years ago was such an idiot or had me two weeks ago. Right. Um, I, I, I get satisfaction out of that. I like to see that I have grown and, 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 uh, become smarter or wiser or savvier in, in running the business. Um, and I, and I guess that's probably important to being able to do this long term or really enjoy anything is, is kind of not just laughing at yourself, but also, uh, being able to recognize your own growth. Yeah, I, I think so. Like that that's that's a big part of entrepreneurship is like loving to to learn and loving to to look back at the mistakes you made and uh laughing about that and understanding that you've grown like from that point to today in, in incredible ways that you would never thought possible. And I'm I think you, you do this a lot because you not only do you look at these things, but then you actively publicly talk about your learnings and you share them with people. You essentially you teach. And that's maybe what one the last thing I would like to talk to you about, because it's been something that um connects me a lot with you at being a fellow writer. You know, is is the book that you've written on the things that you've learned from from all the many many hundreds of thousands of conversations, I guess, that you had with people in in like sourcing information, figuring out stuff like deploy empathy, a book that I have two copies of, one of which is signed, and I'm super happy about that because it's really nice. So you know, like the uh, your your book has been inspirational to me and probably a lot of other people in approaching people in an empathetic and a kind and in an understanding way. And I feel that is just such a great thing for you to have done being a founder that had success 
that had learned how to do something right and then sharing it with the community at large for the low, low price. of You know, it's, it's, it's just a really, really cool thing that I've seen you do is give back. Um, the book itself didn't happen as a book initially, right? Like, how did that whole thing start? Because I, I always I love the story of things that just emerge. And it's definitely an emergent project. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, after I went full time and uh, kind of started to get to know other indie founders, uh, discovering that this whole world was even out there, really, um, you know, eventually uh, started investing in other companies and, and started um, helping other people with their product strategy and understanding customers and realizing that I, I didn't have one place I could send people that was sort of a soup to nuts guide to customer research that was uh, approachable by an indie founder, right? So there's a lot of great books um, from a UX and a product perspective, but they're usually written for much bigger companies or people who come from product and UX backgrounds. Um, they're not really written for software developers who are starting their own company. And then there's also uh, the mom test, which I think is great, but it focuses on the discovery phase. And it's like, okay, well, what if people are trying to figure out why they have churn or which features they should build next or why people keep paying them so they can find out how to shift their marketing to attract more people like them so they get more people who will happily pay them for a long time. Um, and so I didn't have one place I could send people. And so I was like, oh, maybe I should write a book. But... <laughs> This was in the middle of lockdown, and I remembered what anyone I've ever talked to who wrote a book, maybe except you, said that writing a book is a lonely process. And this was I lockdown in the middle of Scandinavian winter, and I was like, man, I do not need any more loneliness in my life right now. I should not write a book. Um, and then I thought about it, and I was like, you know what? But this newsletter thing, this is interesting. I've heard about this. Like, maybe I'll just start writing it out. Like, I can write an email. The idea of writing a book scares me. I don't like, quite frankly, I was afraid of that. Right. Um, but I write so many emails every day. I can write an email, right? Like I can do that. And so then it just started out as the newsletter and it was like, you know what? And if it turns into a book, people want that. Great. If it's just a newsletter. And then when other founders have these questions, I can just send them to the newsletter archive even better. Um, and so I yeah, it did start out with, with low expectations. And I think if I had set out saying, I am going to write a book that's going to sell over 2000 copies and be number one on product hunt, I never would have started <laughs> yet because of the fact that I was like, I'm just going to write this and maybe a couple of my founder friends will find this useful. And then maybe I can send people to it later with very, very low expectations, but enjoying the process of doing it. I eventually got to that point where it sold over 2,000 copies and was number one on Product Hunt and, you know, all of that. Um, but going into it with low expectations, not having that sort of... The, the goal was not some external metric that other people decided. It was my own uh, goal of having a place to send people, which was really not a lofty goal. And I, and I, I think that was key to how I did it. Well, I'm really thankful you did choose these to, to have these low expectations because I, I think that's a common theme in how you approach stuff. Like low expectations allow you to surprise yourself, which is, you know, always nice. It's always a positive surprise, never a, a disappointing one. And enjoying the process more than the result leads to a better result. It's just like uh, with everything you do, right? If you, if you like what you're doing, whatever you do becomes a better thing. If you if you're a painter and you you don't have the final image in mind, but you like exploring, writers do the same. Like in fiction, there's there's outline writers and there's discovery writers. And outline writers write the whole story in outline form before they start writing a single piece of prose. And then there's discovery writers who just write, okay, I guess this is my character. Let's see what she does. And that that leads to a story. And and many of the greatest stories have been written in this discovery form, where people just let and let themselves enjoy the moment of writing, the moment of creation. And I see this in what you do. And I want to bring this to a close. So I just want to say thank you for writing a great book, sharing what you know on Twitter all the time, sharing what you don't know on Twitter all the time as well, sharing what you do on Twitter all the time, having the podcast going, your podcasts, your appearances, all these things. You're just a great person to to follow, to be around and to talk to obviously so um thank you so much also for having a chat with me today um maybe as a final questions wh where can people find you and where do you want people to find you the most 
you are very kind, Arvid. Um, <laughs> I, it really means a lot to me. Um, people can find me on Twitter, where I, quite frankly, probably spend too much time. Uh, <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> uh, but it's fun to hang out with people, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, I just love, I log on and they're like, oh, I can talk to people in Japan and Australia and sitting next to me at my desk as well. Like, um, anyway, um, yes, at MJW Hansen on Twitter. And from there, you'll find links to other stuff, my book and whatnot. But Twitter is kind of my home base on the internet. Yeah, mine too. I spent way too much time there, too much time there as well, and it's uh, it's absolutely worth it, <laughs> at least for for what I do. I mean, some people might probably call it a waste of time in in their profession, but I, I think for for being in a community and engaging with people all the time, learning stuff, like teaching stuff, learning stuff, all of that, Twitter is the perfect platform. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're not on Twitter, you should be. <laughs> you should follow Michelle there as well. So thank you so much for being on today. Um, that that was wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Boots of Honor podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you'll find my book, Zero to Sold, and The Embedded Entrepreneur. And my Twitter course, find your following there as well. If you want to support this podcast and me, please go to ratethispodcast.com slash founder and leave a rating and a review. You can find that time. It would be an amazing, very helpful gesture. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.